Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Big Sister Hotline is recorded on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Sovereignty of these lands has never been ceded. I pay my respects to Elders past and present. The Hotline is proud to be an ongoing supporter of Jira, an Aboriginal-controlled community organisation where culture is shared and celebrated. This land always was and always will be Aboriginal and Black Lives Matter. Big Sister Hotline, how can we help? Hello dear listeners, guys, gals and non-binary pals. You're listening to the Big Sister Hotline, a weekly podcast offering frank, funny and feminist advice on life, love and whether or not you should break up with your no-good Nick boyfriend. Spoiler, the answer is always yes. As a resident Big Sister, perhaps one of the best pieces of advice I can offer is that there's no shame in sexual pleasure and the more often the better. And who better to take control of your orgasms than you, the person driving the damn car? At Wild Secrets, you can find a huge range of toys, accessories and lubricants to enjoy either by yourself or with a lover slash lovers. And for the rest of September, you can use the code CLEM20 to receive 20% off on all purchases over $80. Whether you're playing together or alone, a guy, gal or an NB pal, Wild Secrets has something for everyone. Check out wildsecrets.com.au and take pleasure your pleasure to the next level. If you're an Australian listener, you'd be hard-pressed not to be familiar with Yasmin Abdel-Majid. She's a brilliant writer, a thinker, a speaker and a changemaker. And she also became a lightning rod for Australian racism and Islamophobia a few years ago when she wrote a simple anti-war statement on her Facebook page. She wrote the post on Anzac Day, which for foreign listeners is a day ostensibly designed to honour veterans, but one that sees scores of Australians getting absolutely fuck-eyed and vomiting in the street. Ironically, Yasmin's post was a reflection on war and the displacement of people that so often follows it. She wrote, Lest we forget. Manus. Nauru. Syria. Palestine. In case you're unaware, Manus Island and Nauru are where two of Australia's offshore prisons are located, detaining refugees who have, within the absolute realm of human rights afforded to us all by the UN, sought asylum from war-torn countries. The backlash against Yasmin was swift and extraordinary. Despite issuing an apology almost immediately, which, to my mind, she had no obligation to do, she was exoriated across the entire country. So-called journalists made a meal out of her, In fact, during the height of the attacks, the Australian newspaper devoted more than 90,000 words to her. She was publicly attacked by politicians, including the Prime Minister, and besieged with violent threats from members of the public. 
Thousands and thousands of people sent her death threats, rape threats, graphic videos of abuse including beheadings and demands that she leave the country. And eventually, that's exactly what she did. Since then, the term getting yasmined has become an academically recognised term for the punishment meted out against women of colour who challenge white comfort. Yasmin was ultimately given no choice but to leave the country, but lol sucks to be us because she's since become an international juggernaut. Her YA books, You Must Be Layla and Listen Layla, have been optioned for screen, and she's a podcast host, a theatre maker, a TV presenter, a former race car chassis designer, and was also one of the first female engineers to work on oil rigs in Australia. Did I mention she's only 29? Yasmin joined me for a special conversation about having life as you know it destroyed and what it means to rebuild something more powerful out of the rubble. We discussed what it means to be brave and what it takes to live a good life. I hope you enjoy listening to the conversation as much as I enjoyed having it, and please do support Yasmin's work. She is truly brilliant. Yasmin, how are you? Um, very, very niche question to start there with, Claire. <laughs> when I said that you were coming onto the podcast, everyone obviously lost their shit because they love you. And I did ha- actually have a couple of people who left comments, like, and I know you would hear this all the time, but left comments saying things like, please let her know that not everyone in Australia is awful and we feel so embarrassed <laughs> about what happened. And I mean, it's, I understand the sentiment, but it's also largely like, eh, still happened mm-hmm. yeah god it's so funny because I realized that um this like it this is like three years to the week that I arrived in London where wow. um on the 24th of September I celebrate my three week uh my three year anniversary um and it feels in some ways so long ago but at the same time it also feels like not that much has changed, and but I'm also not in Australia, so I can't know for sure. Um, but I'm certainly a much different person to the person that left. I was I was speaking to a friend last week about it actually, and she was like, "Yeah, when you got here, you know, you, it, it was like you'd just come off some wild roller coaster, and you'd landed, and you're like, okay, I'm here. What's happening? Who am I?" Um, and you know, and I've spent the few years since figuring all that out, and so I'm definitely someone who has a much clearer sense of um, what I care about and who I care about and who I pay attention to and who's worth paying attention to. Um, I'm much more cynical. I'm such a, like, I'm so cynical, Um, (laughs) which is like maybe a defense mechanism. Um, I don't trust people very easily. Um, I generally don't make friends with Australians. It's quite funny. In in London, there's loads of Australians, right? And people are always like, oh, my God, I've got this Australian friend. You have to meet them. And I'm usually like, sorry, but I'm not that interested. Um, and so, like, even though I know lots of Australian people are nice individuals, like, I, I, I'm still friends with lots of Australians. I just have, like, a, a, a trauma that is still associated. And, you know, it's way better than it was. Um, but... I also, you know, maybe maybe it'll be another few years and maybe it'll always just kind of be like that. That I'm sort of, I'm now at the point where I miss things about the country that I grew up in and that never used to happen. I never used to let myself miss Australia um, and there are definitely things I miss now. So, 
Yeah, I'm doing okay. I think that that makes so much sense anyway because going through your 20s is kind of like this transformative experience. You figure out who you are, who you like, who you want to spend time with. You probably end up with a degree of cynicism by the end of it because that sort of pie-eyed optimism that you enter (laughs) your adult life with has given way to a more, um, I guess, realistic perspective Mm. on how people are and how they can hurt you. But for you it happened in this much, much more magnified way. And, uh, I mean, in my own personal circumstances, it's obviously nothing at all to the extent that you've dealt with. But I I have a glimpse of what you're talking about with that Mm. sense of mistrust or I guess prickly, it's triggering. It's the triggering Mm. of Mm. there are certain environments in Australia that I don't want to be in because I assume that a lot of the men in those environments have a particular thought about me or could potentially be dangerous in some way, Mm. except for you, that's the whole country. And that's that's an enormous thing for someone to carry. The first thing I'll say is that, like, what people often say to me, oh, look, well, I haven't been through anything like what you experienced, so X, Y, Z, like, you know, like you just did, for example. But the reality is, is that the the apprehension and the vigilance and the anxiety, all of that is super real, no matter at what level it happened. Um, and I say that because I, I don't want anyone to kind of, like, put my experience on a pedestal um, and, and in doing so... Th- um, not feel like their experience is as legitimate. I'm not sure. I just I've just had a number of conversations with people who've had even like small flare-ups like this, and they feel like they're like, oh, but you know, it's not nearly as bad. I'm like, but it's still real, and and that and that feeling and that suffering and that pain is still so real. Um, and so I want to give it space and and to say that it's like it's very much okay for you to feel however it feels when you're going into these spaces where you feel afraid and unwelcome. Um, the, the one benefit for me is that everybody knows that it happens. So I don't, you know, any Australian, I don't really have to explain. Um, I remember I met one Australian person um, on Stradbroke Island um, who, who hadn't heard about it at all. Like they were like, oh, I just don't read the news. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. You've got literally no, and it was in 2017. I was like, what, you literally don't know anything? Like the whole, he was like, yeah, I like, I don't know what you're talking. And it was astounding to me. Um, and I think like, I've gone through phases with how I feel about it. Um, I've gone through being very bitter and very angry and very betrayed. And I've written about that experience. I've also grieved um, the relationship with the idea of you know of a country the idea of who i was the idea of what society could be should be um and i and i wonder now like would it have been better for me to know that this was going to happen i don't know you know i like um i think part of why it was so personally devastating was because there was a huge gap between how i thought the world was and and how the world ended up being and would I have replaced, like, would I have wanted my my younger self to be more cynical? I mean, probably not. My younger self, you know, the, the version of me that wrote the first book is so, like, bright, like, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and, yeah, like, the world really slapped her about. But I guess that's, that's just kind of, like, um, 
this is a bit of a strange analogy, but when you when you work steel, um, like you beat steel in order to make it stronger, it's literally called like hard working, cold working. Um, and I often think like that's that's kind of what's like I went through this intense um, period of being essentially beaten emotionally and um, psychologically. But it has made me a much, much, much more formidable foe. Um, and that's kind of cool. Mm. It's a really beautiful way to look at it. And, and it's unfortunate that that had to happen. Well, it didn't have to happen to you. I'll check my words there. It's unfortunate that this experience was put onto you and that people did it so enthusiastically and with so much hunger. They loved it. Yeah. Again, not that you should have had this experience in order to be able to make this observation, but it is instructive to look at how people gleefully lean into mm. misogyny and racism and Islamophobia here while pointing the finger mm. everywhere else. All of these other places are terrible. And, oh, over there, you know, I always talk of it as like outland. In outland, that's where they treat women terribly. Mm. In outland. That's where they have reprehensible views on other people living different lifestyles or whatever it might be. Um, you know, obviously a lot of your, I won't even say detractors, that's too kind a word, but a lot of people who love to hate you and love mm. to use symbol to justify their own bigoted views will often turn around and, you know, in their Islamophobic approach to you, point to predominantly Muslim countries as being somehow like terrible in regards to human rights. But I remember saying to you at the time as it was happening, like they would love to do everything to you that they imagine is happening elsewhere, like these abominable human rights abuses. They'd love to drag you into the street and do it for everyone to see. And that's the irony, isn't it? Like I think, and and I still, I haven't figured out how to make that irony obvious to those very people, some like people who, like I think, quite genuinely, um, in some ways, are blind to their own to, to what they're doing. Like they, they actually, they've got such cognitive dissonance that they genuinely don't see the hypocrisy in wanting to do something to me and pointing to what's happening overseas and the fact that, um, and 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 saying that and using that as a tool to to you know beat me over the head with or, or like essentially what's the word I'm trying to use? like their Islamophobia and their misogyny and their racism and all of that I, I mean it seems so blatantly obvious but yet that is still the language that's used like at the top of government that's still you know the top commentators in the country that's still people who write for apparently legitimate papers you know it's also it's not niche it's not fringe it's like the mainstream and that's also the thing that like blows my mind and continues to blow my mind about the australian like public landscape is that it's so controlled and saturated by folks who are so hypocritical and so steeped in their own phobias um, and yet seem to just consistently get away with it and never have to be held accountable. Like that, that's the other thing. No, nothing has ever happened to any of the folks who are responsible for anything that happened to me, for anything that happened to things that have happened to you, things that, that have happened to lots of women of colour and Indigenous women and communities. Like 
there is no accountability. And so that's the other thing I often say to folks who want me to come back. I'm like, what? What do you think has changed? Nothing has materially changed. In fact, it's materially gotten worse. The same politicians who spat in my face and who said some things publicly and privately are in higher positions of power. What on earth do you think has changed? And maybe mm. there are better grassroots um, movements. And I think like I look, you know, mostly online at like incredible activists um, from all sorts of different communities. And I'm like, wow, that's cool. Cause that was like, I think those things were harder to find when I was growing up in Brisbane. And because of the way that people are super connected, you're much kind of more likely to find your people um, if you're a young, you know, um, progressive person growing up in Australia. But I just think it, it really, it doesn't inspire confidence. Mm. That betrayal is, uh, like, it's a little heartbreak oh. to suffer. It's the, not just the betrayal personally of what, you know, was done to you, but that realisation that, you know, when you grow up, pop culture loves to kind of feed us these mm. stories of um, the goodies winning out, the goodies and the baddies, and, you know, everyone wants to be part of the Rebel Alliance not realising that most people would gleefully sign up to be a stormtrooper. Yeah. Um, and you, you, you have to at some point, particularly if you're a person who puts yourself out into the firing line because you do believe in social justice and you do believe that we can demand better and that loving your country can be about wanting your country to be better mm. as well. I mean, loving your country is still weirdly jingoistic for mm. me, but <laughs> wanting, wanting the place that you live to reflect the values that you have. Mm. Mm. Um, and then you realise at some point, like if you if you were doing that work and if you're in that kind of firing line, you have to go through that realisation that, oh, all those stories that I was told growing up about being a good person and about bullies never winning and and if you just fight hard enough, then the goodies will win at the end of the day. It's all fucking bullshit. Like yeah. it is bullshit. And actually what happens is Trump is the president of the United States. Politicians here are mimicking his behaviour because they know that it's popular with bigoted people in the electorate. Mm. And things are getting worse. I mean, things are getting better in terms of progressive people being more connected with each other and more inspired to rise up against that. But the, what it is that we're fighting against is becoming more blatant and more hypocritical and more gleeful in its in its own ability to just continue marching through the world being untouched. Mm. Yeah. A few things come to mind as, as I was listening to you just then. One is that people like to make comparisons to the his, to history and say, well, you know, well, at least you know, we're not living in this era and in this era it was a lot worse. And what I've realised more recently is all of those comparisons are not super helpful um, because all it reminds us is that the work is never over. Like, yeah, okay, uh, you know, we're not... Um, I'm not living in an East London slum, but I could also be, you know, being on a slave ship. Like, you know, like it, it, it could be, it's not super straightforward and whether something was good or bad depends on where you were in the world and a whole bunch of other things. So actually what's most helpful is to think the forces that we are trying to fight 
have always been there, will always continue to be there, and at no point can we become complacent. And so we're in a moment where those um, forces of misogyny and patriarchy and like unfettered neoliberal capitalism and monopoly and Islamophobia and all sorts of things um, are finding ways to increase their power, finding ways to consolidate their power, finding ways to also seem like they are the counterculture, which is something that I think is so fascinating. Like the alt, the alt-right is like, you know, we're trying to fight the elites. And it's like, whoa, hold up. Like all y'all are the elites, right? Like it's <laughs> how did we get to the point where the 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 like straight white guys think they're the oppressed ones? Like they've really done a number <laughs> here on like, you know, what quote unquote counterculture is. So so we're it's um it's work that will always need to be done. And in it's like I guess I think of progress, social, social, economic, racial, all sorts of justice as like constantly pu pushing a boulder uphill. And the moment that you let go, the boulder will go back down, right? Mm. Like, and so it's constantly pushing pressure. And like, yes, that is exhausting, but yes, that's also what we signed up for, right? Um, and and that's kind of fine. Like, I'm here on I'm on this earth for a few decades, give or take. Like yeah, if I'm going to just do my bit to keep that boulder going up, I'm going to do that. Um, mm. The other thing that I was thinking as you were talking was there's this book that I really highly recommend um, by a, a woman named Misri Malik. And she, it's called We Need New Stories. And I, it comes back to something that you said at the beginning, um, where it's around the stories that we are told and the stories that are really powerful um, at the moment about who we are and what kind of society we have and all these sorts of things that all of us have to unlearn and then find replacements for. And she's specifically talking about the kind of stories that like um, conservative governments use to, to get particular policies. But I think there's something really powerful in being like, what are the stories that we tell ourselves as folks that are interested in justice and progress? What are the stories that we use to build the society, that we use to build the vision? What What do those stories look like and how do we um, find the ones that are really good and continue retelling them over and over and over and over until they become real. Mm. Mm. That replacement of, of stories is, like I said before, it's, it's a heartbreak to realise that you have to do it, but mm. you spoke earlier about steel being beaten mm. and part of it, you know, being forged something much more powerful and more resilient. And I think that that is the same process when you're writing new stories is not only being able to be the author of those stories, but also really applying your desire for, for something better to come out of them as well. And so I want to talk because it occurs to me that and there's no way I can have this conversation with you, particularly for a podcast with a predominantly Australian audience of women and not talk about what happened to you. But it also upsets me that this is the thing that precedes you. Mm. This is the thing that most people here still know about you. And I hate that for someone as powerful as you, and, for, and even if it was for anyone actually, but for someone as powerful as you who has done so many things in your pretty short life, I mean, you're still very young um, and has had so many achievements and has, has taken this thing as well and, and, you know, really been forged to steal out of it, that it's still the thing that's attached mm. to your name. 
like that's one of the worst things that's actually, and maybe this is not my place to say, but if I were you, I would feel like this is one of the worst thing that, things out of it that has been done to me because you can kind of weather the storm of, mm. of all of the abuse at some point. It just doesn't touch the sides of you anymore. But to not be able to get away with it, like to get away from it, sorry, to not be able to get away from this thing is it's like they keep dragging you back in. Yeah, it's so funny that you say that because I, I said to, to someone the other day, I was like, the thing about 2017 for me was like, none of it was ever on my terms. So I didn't pick the fights. And that's what kind of like really rubs salt in the wound. Like if they were fights that I picked purposefully, if I was like, I want to get this particular, I want to get this campaign or this legislation or this whatever. And I, you know, like kicked the hornet's nest and all of this blew up, but I had picked the fight and it was on my terms. And I was known for that thing because I wanted to be known for that thing. It's very different to be known for something that you never plan to be known for. And that actually is not the main part of your story at all. It's like it's like knowing an elephant by their toenail. Like it doesn't make any sense. It's like such an <laughs> insignificant part of the elephant. Like why do you keep talking about this toenail? Um, and I think that's one of the best things about not living in Australia is that nobody knows. Nobody knows. And even when you explain it, it sounds strange and bizarre and very Australian because it, it doesn't really translate in other contexts. And so like one of the best things about living in London is that I'm anonymous here to a certain extent that most people don't know that, like they know who I am since I got here. Um, they don't have, and I don't have to deal with the baggage. And it always, I guess it, I've gotten used to that. So it surprises me anytime I go back to Australia or anytime I bump into, you know, folks who know, that part of me and they're like oh yeah blah 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 and I'm like oh of course I've forgotten because you don't actually know how much I've grown you haven't actually seen you didn't even pay attention to the, to the before and after like people will still be like oh my god I didn't know you were an engineer and I'm like what like I talk about it constantly I'm literally constantly banging on about the fact that I'm an engineer my analogies are about steel like come on um <laughs> but like because the the 2017 story is so overwhelming um, it kind of crowds all of that out. But it's quite fun. I mean, you you pointed this out in the caption to do with this podcast. Like, I've written a couple of fiction books. I'm getting them optioned for screen. I'm writing television. I'm writing plays. I literally, at the beginning of this year, had a play on at like an immersive theatre show at Kensington Palace in Hyde Park. I was like, who am I? Like, what? Like, how, like, if you had said to me three years ago that in a couple of years I'm going to be like putting on an immersive show at Kensington Palace, I'd be like, okay, firstly, you have problems with the monarchy, so that will never happen. <laughs> but secondly, like, what? And so um, it's almost like two versions of myself exist in a sense, like the frozen one in the Australian eyes. Um, and the one that I'm living. And I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what, like, whether that, that will ever change. Because sometimes I think it will. And then sometimes I'm like, oh, things don't change in Australia that quickly. Mm. I don't know. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I mean, as you were talking, I was just thinking about that sense of, uh, I'm sure you have this actually, um, the kind of knowledge of you stand here in your position as yourself now, you're 29, I'm 39, so you stand in yourself in the present moment and you become practised at being able to look back through your past selves mm. and look forward 
for your future selves. And I really thought of that when you were talking about like observing the changes in these numerous characters, these these people mm. that you get to through the years. And I think one of the best things that's come out of this horrible thing that was done to you is that you've just become so much more powerful. And for you to be able to stand here as a 29-year-old woman and and I guess like metaphorically look back to yourself at 25 just before mm. it happened and think you don't know what's coming for you. But in God. some weird way, it's in some weird way, like the the power that you're gonna get out of this mm. is going to transform your life. Because if mm. it if it hadn't happened, this is the weird thing to think about. If it hadn't happened to you. Would you have moved to London? Not a chance. Not, and certainly not in the way. Like, if if this hadn't happened, I'd probably still be working for an oil company, fighting with them and, like, trying to get them to, to like, I don't know, maybe have a diversity and inclusion resource group or something. Like, that's that, that would have been, <laughs> been the situation. I probably would have, like, um, maybe, maybe, maybe I would have, like, gotten a promotion um, and, you know, gotten a chance to travel overseas. But, like... I think one of the the opportunities that came out of the experience was the chance to start fresh um, mm. and the chance to be very intentional. Because I guess the other thing is like for folks to imagine, like I moved here, I moved to London. I didn't really know anyone. I had a little bit of savings, which I'm very, very fortunate and grateful for because it kind of like let me make that decision. And I had no job. I was like, I don't know. I literally had no idea what I was going to do with my life. I just moved here and I was like, all right. And I spent like, you know, between three to six months just like trying to make money from cryptocurrency. Uh, so like that's what I spent the first few months doing, watching Netflix and dealing cryptocurrency um, and trying to be like, okay, who do I want to be? Like I, I've had this wild wild experience and one of the things my mom said to me before I left she was like Yasmina Allah is clearly preparing you for something I don't know what it is but the fact that you've gone through something this huge and this public at such a young age it can only be preparation for something and I take that very much to heart and I and I also think another piece of advice that I got from a, a good um, Muslim friend about a year later was that I learned a few things that sometimes it takes a very long time to learn. One, I learned that the the public opinion of you is so rarely anchored to the reality that it is not worth paying attention to at all. Like the public perception of me and the public story was, I was like, I don't even know who that person is. And yet it was me, but I could see that there was this massive difference. And I also remember like before that I had been like, you know, the media's darling in a way. And so like for it to flip so quickly and so um, aggressively was like such, and I constantly am reminded of it. Like it really, like really, you cannot pay attention as an individual who's trying to like create change and engage. If you are interested in engaging with the public space, you cannot, tie any of your self-worth of your self-value any of that to what the public and the media says because it's literally got nothing to do with who you are nothing that was one thing I learned and I'm 
And I have such disregard for journalists, such disregard for the media. I just really, really have so, like, and I know there are some good journalists and I have friends who are journalists and, you know, blah, 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 not all journalists. Um, but my, my, um, I ha yeah, I just hold them in such low regard because I've seen them at work when, you know, they get the bit between their teeth and nothing matters. Like, really. It also sells papers. Yeah. And at the end of the day, they're in the business of selling papers. They're in the business yeah, well, of clicks. What used to be, you know, what, what once was the fourth estate now becomes this. And But the thing is, it was coming for you. Remember you were on that episode of Q&A and yeah. you were up against Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And no, it was coming for me before that as well, which people don't know as well, which was when I walked out of Lionel Shriver's talk and I wrote a, a piece on cultural appropriation. Mm. That was when the little red flag, and I had it, and I remember because um, a journalist from the Australian um, interviewed me and the interview never went live. To call them a journalist. <laughs> I'm being, I'm trying to be, you know, the um <laughs> take the higher moral grounds. Um but I remember and I remember like anyway, there's 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 they were definitely kind of like lying in wait. So there's the piece, the the long-winded piece about how I feel about journalists and the media, but really reinforcing this idea that what people I I have I've divorced myself from caring about what the media says about me because it I, it, that cannot be the way that I judge myself mm. and my worth and my value. Um, the second thing that it really taught me, I think, was like it forced me to figure out who I wanted to be and what I wanted to care about um, and who was going to be alongside me on that journey. And I, I don't, I mean, I don't know if many people know this, but I remember like you, even though we weren't super close at the time, you reached out and you manage my Facebook page for a while and like send, I remember the day that you, you told your followers to send me nice emails. And it was the first day in months. I used to get hundreds of awful emails every day to the point where I had an, like an executive assistant who helped me manage my inbox. She took a day off work, a mental health day off work because it was so bad. But I woke up after you told your followers to do this and my inbox was full of like over 500 nice emails and I like cried I just cried um because I like I was like oh my god this is something that actually made like it made a difference you know it made a difference and you used your position in a way that genuinely made me feel like um I had someone uh, I had someone who was willing to put themselves on the line to help and to support and to be allied to me in a time where I was too hot a potato for anyone to do that. Like lots of people, lots of people privately said, you know, sent messages and lots of people privately did whatever, but it was so public, so public. And none of those people wanted to do anything publicly because they didn't want to be tarred with the brush. And I, that, has always stuck with me. Um, and I have empathy for people who don't want to get involved, but I just don't have respect for it. Mm. 
Well, I mean, I'm incredibly moved that it was it was so powerful for you. Um, and I'm glad that I could direct that love your way. I don't really understand the impulse from people to not get involved either, though. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I would love to say that I sat there and I really weighed up the options of, you know, well, this could put me in the firing line. But <laughs> the truth is, I've, I've always been in the firing line in a very different way to you. I mean, I'm definitely protected by my white skin. And I remember thinking at the time how just how fucking telling it was that I was born in this country, but I spent most of my life outside of this country and Mm -hmm. you spent more time in Australia than I did and yet somehow, you know, I mean, not somehow, obviously, my Australian citizenship for a start and my, well, actually no one would even know if I was Mm -hmm. or not. They just know who I am because I'm Mm -hmm. a white person here and I could come out and say exactly the same thing as you and and in fact, I've said uh, I've said things that are genuinely bad, and what you said was genuinely good. Um, and obviously, the difference in response—I mean, people have come after me, but just not to the same extent. And I and I remember when I did take over your Facebook page that week. Um, you know, you might have this experience too. People say to you things like, "How oh, how do you deal with the abuse?" Mm. For me, it's always just been well. It, when it's happening to me, I actually don't. I'm not really bothered by it, you know. It's mm. just there's so many times you can hear terrible things said mm. about you. It just becomes words and noise. And like you said, it's really important to get to the point where you realise that what is being said about you publicly is not a reflection on who mm. you are. Mm. It, not even a reflection on who you are privately. It's just not a reflection on who you are. It's not what your par- what your um, family thinks. It's not what your friends think. It's not what the people who love you think. Um, and I remember actually Marie Cardi saying to me once upon a time when it was kind of all just starting to happen for me, and she's obviously been through a similar kind of iteration mm. of it herself in a different way because the internet wasn't quite so present. Um, but she quoted Dr. Seuss to me where she said the people who matter don't mind mm. and the people who mind don't matter. Um, so for me when it happens to me it doesn't bother me, but but I really felt it for you and mm. yeah I just I feel like if I could have gotten a flame flo- flamethrower and gone out into the world and like bloody natted all the way all the people away from you then I would have done that because it was just so monstrously unfair and I think mm. that you know when talking to you this is something that occurs about uh, occurs to me about both you and I and and anyone who kind of puts themselves in this position and maybe it's a little bit self-aggrandizing, but I think it's true, is that we do have a really strong sense of justice mm. and have built incredibly thick skins in order to fight for the things that we think are right. But inside us there is still a very naive and optimistic child that believes that the world is better than what we are being presented with. And for me I feel like being reminded constantly that it's not that's so much more heartbreaking than someone saying that they want to like fucking beat you to death and yeah. hang your carcass up in the street. Like it's the it's the it's the realization that oh, actually we're not better than this. Yeah. Not better. Than this. And what we are fighting for and what we're working towards. This is a bit of a depressing kind of observation, but it's it's a slow drip. Hmm. You know, you kind of enter these spaces when you're young and full of energy and you really mm. think I can 
change the world. Mm. And then at some point you have to realize, oh, I'm just going to maybe be able to change one part of the world on one step towards actually changing the world. And Mm. probably what I want to happen will not happen either in my lifetime or certainly not within the time period where I have the energy to keep doing this. Mm. Slowly, the thing is you keep, you have to keep slowly trudging towards the top of the hill, pushing that boulder Mm. up. up. Yeah, 100%. And I think, I think the moment of, well, the heartbreak of 2017 for me was that that truth was presented so undeniably. Um, and like part of my work since then has been how do I, knowing what I know about how bad the world is, can be, continues to be, how do I continue doing this work? What are we getting the energy from? Like how, and honestly, like, I don't do the work in the same way that I used to. Um, I used to run my own organization and be involved in on councils and boards and all sorts of things. And I put my energy into everything. And now um, I'm just a lot more judicious because I'm like, there is so much work to be done. Um, I need to also like, and maybe it's selfish, but like, I need to look after myself and look after the people around me and, and then kind of like, you know, going out in concentric circles, figure out ways as I become stronger to continue to do that work. Um, because nobody is actually looking out for me really when it comes Mm -hmm. down to it. I've got friends and family and allies yes but really at the end of the day and that's the other thing at the end of the day like you can't and maybe this is not true but maybe this is the truth that got me through it but I'm I'm talking a lot to my therapist about this um (laughs) like um the thing that the like most clear kind of metaphor for the experience um my therapist shared was that like I had walked into a war zone and thought I had an army behind me and I looked back and I was alone. And that sense of taking on this huge thing by yourself is absolutely overwhelmingly terrifying. But, 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 but my counter to that now and the thing that I'm trying to learn is that actually there's also an element of not doing it alone, but that requires a different skill set. Like my way of surviving was like battening down the hatches, not letting anyone in, fixing myself, and then like slowly, you know, opening up once I felt like, you know, I could maybe handle it. I barely talked to most of my friends in Australia for a year or two. I just, I just shut off. I like didn't call my parents. I didn't talk to anyone. I just, I couldn't deal with anyone or anything um but I wonder now whether actually there's something to be said for figuring out how to do this work in a way that isn't that doesn't feel so isolating I don't know Mm. I don't know what that I don't know what that looks like yet but I definitely know that like um 
being more vulnerable with people that are doing similar work and kind of like sharing the difficulties and, and trying to be there for each other in ways that genuinely make a difference and genuinely take the burden off. Um, that makes a difference. Like, I, I don't think I can go back to being that isolated, broken person in the middle of a war zone because that's just not how we're meant to live. You know, that's just not how it's supposed to be. And it's so deeply unfair um, and it's so deeply unjust. And people will will partly also force us to think that's where we are. And I think that's also another element of it. I felt like that's where I was. But maybe if anything like that ever happens again, what I now know is it doesn't have to be that way. And maybe if I do look in a different direction, I will find the people that, you know, are on the battlefield with me. And maybe we're just a bit further apart, but, like, we can find each other so we don't have mm. to be so alone. Mm. There's an Annie DeFranco lyric where she talks about a woman approaching her and saying, oh, thank you for all that you do for us. You know, mm. I, I couldn't do it myself or something like that. And the lyric kind of responds saying, what I need you to do is be here with me so I don't have mm. to carry it for you. And I feel like that is one of the things that the, you know, people who, who appreciate others fighting for social justice really need to reckon with in themselves. Mm. It is scary and it is hard to put yourself in the firing line and it's, it's difficult to have those conversations with the people in your immediate surroundings and, and to risk mm. being the unfun one at the party or to risk backlash or blowback against you. But if you're not doing anything at all, don't come and thank you or I for putting ourselves out there because it's kind of meaningless. Like, oh, thank you for, like, taking all the bullets so I don't have to. Well, maybe think about that. Right. And there's, I don't actually, I think the other thing I want to add on to that is, like, I'm not made of anything different to you, like, to you who's listening. Like, I didn't have an exceptionally different experience to you, really, probably. Maybe some things about our life were different, but the difference is I made particular choices. And you can make those choices. You can choose to be brave. You can choose to say, like, because also the reality is the risk is not as high as it could be. The risk for my cousins fighting for their justice in Sudan is getting shot and killed. The risk for different people is different all over the world. The risk for some people is getting poisoned by a government. The risk is, and look, I don't know your individual situations and maybe you are dealing with all sorts of different risks. But really, truly, often, the person that we the the thing that we have to overcome first is ourselves and the fear that we have of being brave i'm still terrified i'm always terrified but i do it anyway you can bet your bottom dollar claim that there are people listening to this podcast that are also get out here to get us both right and yet we find ways to speak i know that people sit on my twitter and facebook and instagram and wait for things that are in, controversial enough so that they can write a headline about it People are out here waiting to see you fall, but do it 
anyway. Really, like just take one step, just try one thing. And you'll find that over time, it gets easier. And maybe it won't, that's fine too. But the important thing is that you're doing it, right? Like the important thing is that you're doing the thing that is just and that is right. And I think that is important because I, my life was destroyed in my mid twenties and somehow instead of going back to a quiet life, here I am trying to still fight for this justice thing. And that should tell you something, right? The hardest time you'll ever do it is the first time. Mm-hmm. And then it gets easier and easier until you realize that it's not an, you know, it's not without its kind of regular harms. It's not without a cost. Mm. But the cost is there because so few people are carrying the burden mm-hmm. of it. Um, and I, you know, I always say that there's nothing that kind of hurts you more than coming to the realisation that you have allowed your voice to be silenced. Mm that to speak up against injustice is difficult and scary, particularly because the structures of every kind of system that we live under make it so impossible to fight mm-hmm. against the system. They make it so impossible by mm-hmm. first trying to convince most people that the system doesn't exist at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but once you start doing it, you realise, I keep coming back in my head, I keep coming back to what it is you said that your mother said to you when you left Mm. London, that all of this has happened to prepare you for something. Mm. And I feel like the reason I keep coming back to to that in my head is because it's such a powerful call to action and a powerful kind of tribute to your life and to, uh, to your life personally, Yasmin, you were being prepared in the worst way. You were being prepared for the continuation of this greatness that you are, that you were being prepared to like really step into your power. Mm. That in a way maybe because of because of so many different um, elements at play, you know, like the the expectation from a white supremacist, misogynistic, Islamophobic society that the only way you could be accepted into it was by playing the most enthusiastic role mm. of a positive, productive, happy migrant who's just so grateful to be here. Mm. But that was never going to work for you for much no. longer. Kind of like you were you were already at the point where as a woman you were beginning to step into your power. Mm. So you you needed to in some way be able to forge yourself out of that. Mm. And I think if more women thought about taking risks that allowed them to find their voice in that really powerful way, if they thought of it in terms of I'm being prepared for something, I'm being prepared mm. for I am. I'm being prepared to own myself publicly in a way mm. that I feel I could in my adolescence. Then it might be more of an appealing process. <laughs> yeah, I feel like maybe I've. Um, I, I hope I haven't been too harsh on people. I was. I, I don't no, know. no, 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 no. That's not. That's not what I was saying. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, no. I just. I was just reflecting on what I was saying and, um, and kind of wanting to build on what you just said, which is. 
I mean, one of the things that makes me the happiest is when I see friends and people I know step into their power. It's just so wonderful. It's just so wonderful. You're like, oh my God, yes, yes. Like this is in you. You just have to see it. I see it. I see it and I love it. Others see it and they're terrified of it. And now you finally see it and you can control it and you can do what you want with it, but it's in your hands. And I think that's like so powerful to, to, to think of, as you said, Clem, like taking steps, seeing things as preparation for the life that you are living, the life that you are to live. But also like in, I kind of, I think that, oh, like from a faith perspective, I think of trying to always be working towards the fullest, best version of myself. Um, I don't think I'm there yet. But I think that's kind of the process of what life is. And and you can kind of apply that to anything. It's, and especially in this space when it's like, right now you are, you're on, <laughs> oh my God, I'm just going to sound so cliched, but like you are in the process of being formed and the choices you make are like what form you. And also it's never too late. Like, no matter what, where you are or what age you are or what you've done, it does, like the point where you decide I will now choose, the point where you're like, I'm intentionally going to be this person. I'm not going to just allow myself to be a leaf in the wind and blown whichever way, but I'm choosing to take the steps that I want to take. God, it's so good. That sense of mm -hmm. agency is like, mm -hmm. yes, you do you and you make that call. And we will be here fucking cheering you on. Mm, oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing is that there are, there are so many beautiful benefits to it as well, you know, that mm. people focus on the negative and they focus on the what they perceive as being like the daily damage. But they don't realise that this is what it means to – to be a person trying to bring about change in the world is that it it's going to upset people. And I, th I think for women in particular, there is that terrible fear of, I mean, I never felt it. <laughs> yeah, neither did I. <laughs> when people are like, I'm so, I'm like, where does that, when? <laughs> yeah. But a lot of women feel so terrified of being that one that rocks the boat, mm. you know. And yeah. so let's talk about, what you what you were being prepared for let's talk about all of the incredible things that have changed in your life since being essentially forced to leave a country like you that's what happened um you were forced you had no, you, were, you were left with no other choice but to leave <laughs> australia and become even more powerful which is what they hate the most about you. it's actually so delightful <laughs> <laughs> it's like really way to win that one <laughs> um, um about the the incredible turns that your life have ta has taken and 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 what you what you are doing now so i spent i would say like the first year making friends um i was very like i don't have any friends so i'm gonna make friends this is my project for the year goals friends um and then like the second year 2019 um I started to write a lot and 
and I've spoken about this a bit on on online. I never thought of myself as someone who was a writer. I had a lot of I wouldn't say imposter syndrome, but like I did engineering, I did science, I came from a family of engineers and scientists. Like the concept of writing was like something that you did to like communicate a recipe or an experiment. Like it wasn't, you know, an art form in, in of itself. Um, so the idea that I I could be someone who is a serious creative was very new and very and very scary, to be honest. But I started writing and I wrote You Must Be Layla, which was the, my first fiction book. And that came out in 2019 in Australia in 2020. Um, in the UK and and then I got a chance to write a sequel and I wrote I co-wrote a television show with a friend that's in that's in development and I'm writing a spec script about a chick working on an oil rig and as I mentioned I created a theatre show and I'm now wildly um I've, I got selected for like the Soho Theatre's Writers Lab. So I'll be developing a play with the Soho Theatre and I'm going on this artist residency in Paris next year. So like I am now living a quite legit quote unquote writing creative life, which is still mind blowing. I'm still blown away by the whole thing. I like two weeks ago, I looked at my manuscript for Lisa Leila, which is a sequel. And I was like, oh my God, I'm so miserable. Why does anyone write a book? I don't know anyone who's an author who's not, who's like a happy person. This is a terrible process. Why is being creative, you know, brought to my life? But I handed in my manuscript today and, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not crying about it. So um, that's a plus. I think what um what has been exciting about it has been slowly giving myself permission to be a different version of myself um so, like giving myself i didn't act in class so like a lot of these opportunities came from the fact that la late last year i was like i want a new skill so i signed up to an acting class that i found on twitter and and then I acted and the director really liked me. She asked if I'd like to co-write a play. And then, you know, one thing led to another and I got this amazing agent. So like, literally it just, it was like a whim. I was like, let me try this acting course and see how we go. Um, and so like that part of my life, subhanAllah, alhamdulillah has like flourished and I don't know what's in store, but I think that's okay. I think it's okay for me not to know where that's going. Um, the other side of me is the sort of like more formal social justice side and that's been what's been interesting about that is I also have probably spent the last three years doing more reading and kind of like developing of my um I, I mean like I never studied history I never studied literature gender I like all of this stuff I never studied I learned everything that I know simply by reading um and through lived experience and so I've spent a lot of time in the past few years trying to, to understand the theories that I ascribe to, to try to understand, better understand the systems that I'm trying to dismantle, um, better understand the histories that I am part of and either replicating or trying not to replicate. Being in London is fascinating because every, like you cannot talk about like the history of the Anglo world without talking about empire and nobody talks about empire. Um, so it's been so fascinating to like be in London and learn about empire and confronting empire and grappling with it. And, you know, and Australia is an extension of that. Um, and so I think there's been like, I'm fascinated by, you know, black feminist thought. I'm fascinated by liberation theology that's based in Quranic 
um, readings. Like I'm just, I'm really hungry for knowledge and I'm loving learning and deepening my thinking. And who knows, maybe I'll write a manifesto, right? Like we need, we need, <laughs> I want to put my energy into something. So. <laughs> do, you ever feel, do you ever feel overwhelmed by all the possibilities that are in your life now? In a good way, I mean that, that you know, you said before that your life was destroyed when you were in your mid-20s. Mm. Um, and, you know, the, kind of the destroyed thing, it was the life as you knew it was mm. obviously destroyed, but your life has been so, become mm. so rich. That's then. such a, like, that's so much a better, articula- that is a much better articulation of what happened. Life as I knew it was destroyed, but, um, but you know, scorched earth still lets you, well, does it let you grow something new? I'm not sure. Let's just pretend I didn't say that. Um <laughs> But like, but where, you know, in that rubble, something else definitely grew. And um, do I feel overwhelmed by the possibilities? Sometimes. The other thing I, I think I sometimes feel is like, just as we, as you were talking, I was like, oh, I think I've had to learn to grieve the past without wanting to be back in it. Mm. Um, I, there are parts of me like people ask me if you love engineering so much, why don't you go back? And I can't tell them why, but it just doesn't make sense. And I like I don't know I don't know why. Um, because ostensibly I could go back to my mechanical engineering job, but I feel like I've shed that skin, and and right now that's not where I need to be. And it's strange. I do most things super rationally and logically, and I can usually point to like a plan as to why that, or like, you know, a, a matrix or a spreadsheet as to why that thing is the way that it is. But I don't know why, but I know that I have to grieve that version of who I was and that life that I lived. Um, and right now there's this space for creativity and experimentation and art in a way that I've never had space for or even imagined. But Part of me also wonders, part of me also maybe feels like this too will have it, will run its course. And maybe at Mm. some point there'll be another phase and I don't know what that looks like, but I know that all of it will amount to something. I don't know what that is yet, but. um, Well, it's a life. Well, yeah, I guess that's true, right? (laughs) Yeah, I mean. the many iterations and the many lives mm. of you that maybe one day you would go back to mechanical engineering, but mm. also, as you said, maybe it's a, shin, a skin that you've shed. And before we started recording, you were telling me that you were learning to sew. Maybe mm. you'll be a fashion designer. I mean, you've, you're very, very bloody fashionable. You're very <laughs> interested in fashion. You've, you know, you've made the TV, the series, um, Hijabistas, yeah. So I think it's so exciting to think of if there are if there are silver linings to these experiences, it's so exciting to think of being able to really, you know, to sort of quote Dead Poet Society, which we all watched when we were teenagers. <laughs> suck the marrow out. And you're a woman of faith. Mm. And I imagine that something that is something that is meaningful and purposeful mm. to you is the idea of living an enriched life, like taking mm. 
life that you've been given by Allah and honoring it? There are two things that come to mind. One is if you don't know Esther Perel, you have to listen to Esther Perel. I love Esther Perel. Love Love Esther Perel. And one of the things that she often... (laughs) So much. Esther Perel and Brené Brown really got me through a lot. (laughs) Bless my cotton socks. Um, One of the things that Esther Perel always talks about is how, um, you know, her parents were Holocaust survivors and she grew up around a lot of people who were Holocaust survivors. And there was a difference between people who survived and people who chose to live again. And I always thought that, that was so powerful. She was like, my parents had been through the worst experiences possible, but they chose to live. They chose to find beauty and light and laughter. And and I remember listening to one of her interviews very early on, like um, early maybe 2018, and thinking if they could do that, if there is a possibility that you could go through such a horrific experience and lose your entire your entire world, your entire family, and still find life again, that gave me so much hope. That gave me inspiration to be like, oh, this is a choice I can make, and I'm not betraying anything. I'm not betraying any other people or any past versions by choosing to live again, but I'm but I'm honoring this moment and this life that I have been given, as you say. And the other thing, again, my mom is full of wisdom um, that my mom said to me when I was young was that on the day of judgment, at least in the in the Muslim context, you know, she was like, Allah will ask you, I gave you these opportunities, I gave you these gifts, I gave you the ability to do these things. What did you do with it? What did you do with all I gave you? I gave you all of this abundance. I gave you this life. What did you do with it? And I want to have a good answer. I want to say I lived the life that you gave me to its absolute fullest. And I grappled with it and I enjoyed it and it made me cry and it broke me, but I lived it. I think that this is the challenge that we must all set for ourselves. Hmm to not just live a good life. People get really bogged down in this idea of living a good moral life. Mm. And often what what that makes them end up doing is being too afraid to make choices that actually Mm. upend their life and change their life. You know, like women, this is very different from what you're talking about, but women who write to me about, you know, being in deeply unhappy relationships Mm. and marriage with men who they have children with and, you're saying things like, but I don't want to, I don't want to do the wrong thing. I don't want to hurt him or I don't want to, mm-hmm. he's a good person or, and, and, and often times he's not a good person. But this, you know, I always say to them, like, what story do you want to be telling mm-hmm. about yourself in 10 years time? Mm-hmm. What story do you want to tell about your life when you get to the end of it? Do you want to get to the end of your life and say, well, at least I made all of the the right choices by the people. I mean, right in quotation right, marks. Right, yeah hurt anyone but you didn't live either you didn't you didn't take what this precious gift of life that has been given to you no matter what your belief system has been given to you Mm. for some reason Mm. and all all of the circumstances all of the things that happened to you that you could have used as preparation for something more you didn't take yeah so what what story do you want to tell about your life 
in 10 years time or when you get to the end of it, whatever it may be. And I'm like you, like I want to be able to, whatever may come, yeah. I want to be able to stand there and either say to myself or say to the creator, this is what I did. And I, I tried my best to yeah. take the life you gave me and not necessarily just do good things with it, but live it. And if I can add to that, I know that for me, I spent a lot of time in therapy being like, oh, but I want to do the right thing. What's the right thing? What's the right thing? What's the right thing? And I think we can become obsessed with that question. And, you know, as you say, philosophers have talked about that question for centuries. But ultimately, even if you make the wrong decision, you still have, inshallah, life after that to continue living. Like, it doesn't all hinge on whether it's quote unquote the wrong or right thing and also so often you have to give yourself permission i remember one of the one of the biggest kind of hang-ups i had when i was thinking about what to do with my life was like i, I was like i just need someone to tell me that i'm doing that i need someone to give me permission to live this life and this version of this life. I need someone to give me permission to be, to say that I can be a writer. I need someone to give me permission and say, yes, yes, me, you are a writer and you are an activist and these are the things you are. Like I need somebody, I need whoever it is who gives out these labels to to come and tell me so that I can feel credible mm -hmm. and okay in, 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 in wearing these labels. But the only person who can give you permission is yourself. Like the only person who can for so many of the things that we're grappling with, for so many of the of the questions of what's right or wrong, give yourself that permission. And, and you know what? Whatever happens, at least you own it. At least it's yours. Mm, I'm getting chills actually because I think that's a revolutionary, sadly, a revolutionary concept for people to own to own their choices and, and you're the only one who can take the first step. And I look at you and I think one of the, one of the great takeaways that people can have looking at you and, and what's happened to you and where you've come from it is that you know now that mm. you've weathered the worst thing that has happened to you and that one of the worst things that could really happen to anyone you weathered it, you survived it, you like a phoenix rose from the ashes and became more powerful. You're, you know going forward that no matter what choices you make and no matter what things you try. Come what may. Come what, come what may. may. Next week and be like, you know what, I think I want to be a peach farmer. Mm -hmm. And you could be like, I'm going to try and be a peach farmer. And if it didn't work out for you, you know that you can rebuild. You've done it. You have the evidence of rebuilding your life out of absolute destruction, out of a war zone. And that's, that's something no one can ever take away from you, no matter what fucking headlines they write, no matter how deeply they score through your Twitter account. They can't touch you now. And that, strangely enough, is something I'm grateful for. Yasmin, it's been an, an honour and a privilege to talk to you for this podcast. Um, you know that I am an extraordinarily huge admirer of yours. I am deeply appreciative of our friendship. Nice. I 
I look to you as an example of, I don't know, you're like, oh, I hate this word, but you're a real inspiration to me. Um, oh. I feel deeply inspired by you and your work and your approach to life and the way that you educate yourself because of your hunger for knowledge. Um, and I, I'm, I'm so glad that you're in the world. Thank you, Clem. And genuinely, like right back at you. And I think, <laughs> I mean, you are somebody that has been front and center fighting for women in Australia for as long as I've been aware of, you know, who is fighting for women in Australia. Um, and it's a pretty thankless task in a lot of ways. Um, but I've also seen you grow over time and I've seen you lean into yourself and I've seen you, um, I don't know, allow yourself to, to flourish um, even more and more and more as the years have gone by. And that's been so wonderful. And it's been such an honour um, to see that and to witness it and, and to, you know, be alongside you um in that so thank you genuinely just know that the next time you choose to march into battle <laughs> i i will always stand side by side with you thank you likewise likewise my friend you've been listening to the big sister hotline a weekly advice podcast that delivers no nonsense words with love from the kind of people you know have your back your big sisters you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podchaser, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you look for great content. And you can also listen to all the back episodes. If you like the show and if you enjoy listening, please do consider rating and reviewing it because it really does make a difference, particularly in terms of putting the podcast into the reach of other people. You can also support the ongoing making of the hotline at my Patreon, which is www.patreon.com forward slash Clementine Ford, where pledges of more than $10 per month receive access to a bonus monthly episode of the hotline, only available for download to subscribers. If you have a question you'd like answered, you can submit it to bigsisterhotline at gmail.com. And don't worry, all submissions are treated as totally anonymous. We're big sisters and we've got your back. My guest this week was the incredible, inspirational, amazing and very bloody funny Yasmin Abdel-Majid. She's a writer, an activist, a theatre maker, a podcaster, a former race car chassis designer and also a woman to whom we can look for really an inspirational model on how to be brave in our own lives and how to put ourselves out there in the firing line and prepare ourselves for what comes next. I'm so grateful to have had this conversation and I really hope that you've enjoyed it. Remember, there's no topic too thorny and no question too weird for the Big Sister Hotline. We here for all the questions you don't want to ask your therapist, especially now that it has to be over Zoom. So contact us instead. The Big Sister Hotline phone lines are open. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.